Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome to episode 96 of Talk 4, the quickfire podcast where we ask four great questions to unique and interesting people. Behind the mic today is your host, Louis Scoopian. That's me. And let me introduce our special guest for today. Craig Harrison is going to be answering our questions today. Craig, welcome aboard the Talk 4 podcast, man. Just please say hi to the fine people listening and give us the uh, the 30 to 60 second-ish rundown of who you are and what you do. Then we're going to dig into some questions and also Happy New Year. No, hi guys. Thanks, Louis, for having me on your show. Um, obviously, my name's Craig Harrison. Um, I'm famous for um, holding the world record sniper shot in the world. Obviously, not anymore, but I did hold it for quite a while and um, served 23 years in the British Army, 16 years as a frontline sniper, and uh, completed 10 tours of my army career altogether. So, yeah. Pretty crazy career, man. And uh, so, just quickly, then, how long did you hold that? Uh, the kill shot then the longest sniper shot in history how many years was that then um i think it was about four years four 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 five years i held it for but the smaller it was my rifle was a smaller caliber um all these rifles that have beaten it now just massive calibers you know and warfare is just getting better and better and better you know it's it's gone all futuristic and stuff like that it's not like stemmed from the first second world war to you know korea and stuff like that and it's gone up and warfare has gone more technical more than anything else. So the weapon system's gone more technical. Scopes have gone more technical, you know. So, yeah, and um, records are meant to be broken, you know. And and one thing I must remind all your listeners, I didn't do it to break the world record. You know, I did it to save 12 people and the opportunity was there. And I thought I'll push my luck and I achieved the goal, so... It's a hell of a thing and a serious record that must have been very difficult to break. And obviously, like you said, it took a number of years. So, um, but anyway, so that's like, that's what you're known for. But what I like to do on the show is kind of get stuck into a bit of backstory before we kind of get into that. So tell me your backstory, man. Like what led you down the military path to start with initially? And then kind of what was the motive there joining and walk us through your training and career path going into the military to start with? Well, I joined the, uh, my, my, my family for being military oriented. They're all in the RAF, my mum, my dad, my grandfather and stuff like that, you know. And um, But I always was interested in horses. I've been riding since I was so little. And um, I was lucky enough to have horses when I was little. My, my uh, bringing was good, you know, and very privileged to have horses. And I wanted to carry on that. But where I lived in Cheltenham, there was no job prospects or anything like that and I thought well I want to be a farrier I want to get a trade and my grandfather always said get a trade get a trade and uh, I know the army do farrier and I wanted a secure job as well so um, I was sort of like leaned into joining the household cavalry um, with the horses and they do the troop and the colour and down at Whitehall and all that and um, just to um, get a trade as well to become a farrier in the army and um, once I've achieved all my goals, get out, open my own business. You know, you're set for life, aren't you, really? And uh, But, yeah, it never worked out like that. Rarely does, right? <laughs> yeah, so because I'm a bit dyslexic as well. So not a bit, well, I am dyslexic. And uh, I find it hard sometimes. And when I went into the Forge, um, when I joined, they... Um, I was doing more illustration work than written work and it wasn't to their standards. So um, I didn't um, make the cut to go down into, um, uh, I'm trying to think where, Melton Mowbray. Melton Mowbray is where the Farrier School is where you get taught. And uh, I didn't make the cut 
Yeah, and uh, even though my uh, practical skills were up to standard, uh, I'm afraid my written stuff wasn't. But I always tell people, and I'll tell your listeners, always have a plan B. Always have a plan B. And I didn't have a fucking plan B. So I was a bit lost for a while, you know, and what to do, where to go, really. But I soon found my feet in other avenues. Right. So obviously, yeah, you clearly did. <laughs> so sniper what was the what was the interest there and how did that come about then well my regiment doesn't have snipers in it because there's no role for a sniper in the household cavalry uh my regiment's very archaic you know the wagons that we used were similar to spartan sultans and stuff like that they were made in the 60s and we're still using them till you know the 2000s they've changed it now to a new vehicle called ajax much bigger reconnaissance vehicle uh, because that's my um regiment's role is forward reconnaissance so we go in front of everybody you know and uh, the only furthest people in front of us will be uh, the special forces uh, <coughs> and our job is to uh, gather you know information of the battlefield and send it back and that's our job so vehicles are meant to be nice and small nippy you know have a bit of firepower but there was no jobs for snipers and um, after every tour that you do the sergeant major will go around and say, look, what course do you need to do? What course? It's all about career in the army. It's all about progressing up the ladder. And I said, well, I want to be a sniper. And I always got shot down saying, no, 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 all the time. And eventually they, they said, yes. Um, the person in charge of the armored division, um, some officer really high up in, in Whitehall suggested that snipers would be a good asset in a reconnaissance role so um because the role of a sniper is to gather lifetime information of the battlefield that is a primary role of a sniper people always think go out and shoot people that's your secondary role you know um but the, the your first role is to be a sneaky bastard get loads of information and then send it back and then they tell you to take the shot or not and that's the idea so yeah i become a sniper I came off tour, they put me on a course, and yeah, I was the first household cavalryman to become a sniper. Very cool stuff. Um, so something that I want to tap into there a little bit, is just you said that you always wanted to become a sniper. So, you know, what, what was it that appealed to you about that particular role then, would you say? I think because I met one in Iraq once, um, we was in this big city called Alamara, and we had to fight to get in there. And once we were in there, we established a foothold in that Alamara city. And we took over a big football stadium and they had snipers posted around the high points of the football stadium. I remember I just wanted to air my head a bit. So I went for a walk and I went around the football stadium, but I went around the tops and I started talking to this sniper. He was Royal Irish Regiment and he didn't take his eye off the scope. You know, he was so switched on and everything. And I thought, this is what I fucking want. This is what I want, you know, because... Don't get me wrong, in the army, you follow orders. And in the army, sometimes you do some bizarre stuff. Like I've painted the grass green once because the queen was coming to our regiment. So we had to paint the grass green outside the sergeant's mess and things like that. And you think to yourself, this isn't fucking right. But when I stand back and looked at the snipers, they got treated like adults. You know, it's like being in the SF, you get treated like an adult. And, and that's what I wanted, to be treated like an adult and to let my professionalism come through and shine through. 
And that's why my interest started. And plus, I love being on my own. I love being being in the countryside. I love being a sneaky bastard, you know, so it sort of fitted me to a T, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that was the perfect role then. And I mean, from your career, you definitely excelled and quite some more than that at that role. So obviously, like we said, we know you as a sniper who formerly held the world record for the longest confirmed sniper kill in history as a range of, right, hold your breath, folks, 2,475 metres. I mean, that is a seriously long distance. I mean, me, I play a bit of airsoft and, I, you know, catch someone out at about 70 meters i'm like wow that's a long way and then you, you have someone like craig who manages that um so i was hoping you could kind of tell us the, the story of where that happened how it happened and really just kind of go into detail about what it takes to get a shot and target at over one and a half miles out i mean i think i read somewhere that you had to aim i think 400 feet above the target for gravity and a muzzle velocity loss i mean is this Something a sniper like that, yeah. or a javelin <laughs> yeah you gotta think of um People at far long distances, it's, you don't put the crosshairs on the rifle on the target because it's impossible to achieve that shot. You have to aim off. Your your crosshairs would be up left or up right, you know, and you're shooting right below because you don't shoot on full magnification of the scope either. People think it's to just whack it on full magnification, get it as close as possible. It's going to be an easy shot, but I guarantee if you did that, you'd end up missing. You know, because your crosshair start wobbling, it will start, you start feeling your heartbeat in the scope as well. So you turn it down to half and, you know, you'll hit the target. But my shot, my rifle only goes 1,500 yards. That's the designed distance of my rifle. And we're on a mission in Afghanistan um, in 2009, 2010, the tour went on to. And it was my job to give overwatch for a patrol going into this village. And the, the patrol was mixed with Afghan army and um, British troops because the British troops were teaching the Afghan army how to patrol um, and how to, you know, fend themselves in a contact or something like that. Um, but they felt comfortable with snipers and big guns on the high ground. The Afghan army felt comfortable in walking into places because we knew, you know, we had their back sort of thing. And it was in a place called Talajan. It's a small village south of Musakala in the northern Helmand province. And, um, yeah, it was a perfect day. You know, it was a winter tour that we'd done. But, you know, those days when it was nice and crisp but warm, you know, blue sky and everything, but it's winter. And that's what it was. It's T-shirt weather. And um, I could see all the Taliban queuing up for the attack as the patrol went into the village. And I was radioing to the patrol saying, look, you got Taliban. They're going to open up on you. They're going to, you know. And I had a, an interpreter with me, and he had a um, a radio with him called ICOM. ICOM and it's ICOM Chatter. Um, that the we've turned into their frequency of the Taliban and the interpreter is his job to translate and what they're saying. And they're saying, look, we're queuing up the attack. We'll wait to get to the kill box. And what a kill box is, is like a, a plot of ground where there's no cover. Um, there's no arcs of fire or anything. You just get massacred in this kill box, really. Um, there's nothing there. And that's what they were waiting for, basically. And I saw a glint in the distance. And I thought, what the fuck was that in the distance? I've checked everywhere. So I, I turned my scope on full mag, 
not going to take a shot. I just wanted to observe. And I could see a guy there with a radio and uh, the glitter, the glint was the glint of his antenna of the radio. And I thought, he's doing something. He's a, like a scout or a dicker. So I, I told the patrol we're going to fire a shot. I told him the situation. So I fired a shot and it went fucking low, dead low, because I laser binoed it with my lasers and it just came up with four red lines. So I knew I was way out of my, you know, um, capability of my rifle. So I turned the scope down. And what I did, I did a thing called bracketing. So I fired my first shot, went low. Then I'll aim a little higher, low, high, 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 high. And it took me nine shots to get there. And I hit the compound wall. And then the ICOM chatter went quiet. And then it spoke saying, I cannot help you anymore. I'm getting shot at from somewhere. And that somewhere was from me. Now that distance was 2,475 yards, uh, meters away. So I've hit that wall. So this is in the morning, okay? Now the patrol's gone in and then the patrol's gone into the kill box and the Taliban have opened up on them. So they're taking casualties, they're returning fire and it's a horrible firefight. Now, usually a firefight would last minutes, seconds sometimes. They do a thing called shoot and scoot where they just spray and then they fucking run off, you know, and they go somewhere else and shoot again. This one lasted for ages, all right, because the Taliban had good ground, they had good cover, they had good ammunition, you know, they weren't going to run low. And it was also their objective to kill that patrol. So I started taking targets out. Uh, where I was and it was a bit of a chicken shoot really because the, the position I was I could see the Taliban quite clearly now as a sniper you're only meant to take one to three shots and get the fuck out of dodge you know because you don't want to be caught because you're a prime asset to the Taliban if you get caught they're gonna you know they're gonna public humiliate you in front of everybody you know and but I stayed on the high ground and I carried on fighting. But I fought something on the ground. I thought what I need to do is break the kill box from the Taliban. So what I decided to do is move the vehicles that I had behind me into a barrier so the, the patrols protected so they can get out of Dodge and then they can open up on the Taliban, which they done. And then it all went, the battlefield went quiet. And um and I could see somebody of the, the uh, right-hand side of me, and I thought, fuck, we're going to get flanked here. He's a marker. We're going to get flanked. So I popped him. He went down. He was about 670, 645 yards away, so I shot him. Um, he, he wasn't a marker. What he had done, he had knocked the head off a water pump, and it flooded all the irrigation fields where my vehicles were. Now my vehicles are stuck, their wheels spinning in the mud because it's not mud out there. It's like dry clay. It's horrible stuff. And their wheels are, and I could hear in the distance, and I thought, fucking hell. So I'm checking everywhere where I engaged the enemy. Couldn't find it. The only place I didn't check was at the top. So I went up the top, and I could see two guys with a PKM machine gun, which is a Russian-made belt-fed machine gun. It can be drum-fed as well, but they're belt-feeding it. And um, I thought, fucking hell. I know where I'm shooting. I shot there. All I want to do is shoot, not to kill them, because it's fucking miles away. 
you know. I just want to get their heads down so my lads can get out of the dodge. So I fired my first shot, um, missed. I could see the splash. It took six seconds, six seconds time of flight, and I was counting in my head. Six, splash. Then I fired a second shot. As I fired my second shot, one of the guys stood up, and I hit him in the chest, and he fell backwards. Um, Because I was shooting on half magnification, I was then flipping it to full mag to see what was going on, then flipping it back to semi-mag, medium magnification again. So, and I thought, right, I need to get this other guy now. It's possible. So I fired my third shot. And as I fired my third shot, I counted in my head three seconds. I went one, two, three. Moved my rifle across and I fired again. So now I've got two bullets in the air at the same time three seconds apart because it's six seconds time of flight. Um, third one missed, fourth one hit him in the side because he was standing up to move the machine gun and he went down. And next thing I knew, an Apache helicopter came down to the side of us and I could see the pilot and he went to me, he goes, are you okay? I could see his lips read. He goes, you okay? And I, I put my thumb up and I pointed to where they were getting engaged and he GPSed it at 2,475 metres you know, when he and I, I knew why I shot the guys because it's the job for you to get the weapon system back to stop it going back into enemy hands. That weapon system were gone, you know, and it was just the bodies that were left there. Yeah, and that's the story of my shot. Oh my god, that's absolutely crazy, man. Um, so a couple of questions that spring to mind from that. Then number one is. You know, like I said, I play a little bit of airsoft from time to time, and I, you know, we kind of use the the three times magnification scopes, maybe nine times or something. So, what kind of magnification were you using when you were taking those shots? And like you said, you don't go full mag. So, what was uh, the magnification that you were using when so you took that So it's fifty six times yeah. twenty five times fifteen. Wow. Okay. So and that's I mean that's a hell of a strong scope, isn't it? Yeah, oh it's, a, it's a Smith and Bender scope. It's German made. Um, there's loads of scopes out in there. There's Nightfalls, you know, there's Leopold yeah. and stuff like that, you know, but um, I preferred the Leopold and that's what, I'm sorry, the um, Smith and Bender scopes. And that's what we got issued with. So we didn't have a choice in what scope we could use. So it's like you get issued it and you've got to make it work for yourself, really. Well, you certainly did. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what was your reaction when those shots landed then? I mean, at what point did you kind of get the word like this was the world record shot? I mean, were you initially like, holy shit, like when did all that start to sink in? That was my last tour of Afghan um, because on that tour, I think after I was in that drama, that big tick, where ticks troops in contact, we was in a big tick. Um, I I got shot on my helmet in a big contact. It went round my helmet and came out the top. That knocked me out for about 20 seconds. And then, then three days after that, I hit an IED, you know, and broke my arms, um, got a brain injury. Uh, my hips were fucked and everything. But they redeployed me after six weeks. And so I went back to Afghan after six weeks, after they took my casts off. And then I carried on snipering for a few, uh, another four months. And then what happened is we came back to England and you have a medals parade. So um, high ranking officer or an MP will come round and they will present you with your Afghan medal. 
And uh, what happens then is like a journalist will come round because obviously you're the local regiment of Windsor or London and a journalist came round and he was a freelance journalist and he wanted to know about my, my lads' story or stories that my lads had. And as me being a sniper, I've got a lot of stories, you know, and I kept saying all the time, well, this gets censored. Well, this gets censored. Yeah, it will get censored. It will get censored. And I thought, brilliant. You know, you feel safe at home, don't you? So I opened up to this journalist. And before I knew it, you know, um, the medals parade was on the Thursday, I think. And on Sunday, my wife opened the newspapers and it was all over the newspapers. And it wasn't about my lad's efforts. It was just about me. What made me quite sick, really, because my lad's put enough effort in more than I did you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm a sergeant, I'm guiding them and I tell them where to go and they fucking do the job really well, you know. And my wife, Tanya, bless her, she said, something's wrong. I feel this, this can't be right. And everyone told her to shut up, basically, and just let Craig enjoy the moment, you know. And she was right, you know, it was wrong. And then we started getting death threats and then the journalist rang me up and he said to me, he goes, do you realise you broke Rob Furlong's world record? And I went, no, not at all. And I really wasn't fucking interested, to be honest with you, because I did it to save people. You know, that was my job. You don't go out to break a world record. You go out to do a job and you do it well, you know. And uh, and that's what I did. And so I wasn't really interested, but it just went bigger than Ben-Hur. All the death threats started coming in. Me and my wife went into hiding for three years. Uh, we went into secure housing because they wanted to cut my head off because it turned out the two guys that I killed were high-ranking Taliban leaders. And as I redeployed after I broke my arms back into Afghan, they hired a out-of-season fighter to hunt me down um, to, to try and capture me. So, Oh, my God. Yeah. And this is at home in the UK? Yeah, yeah. They found a car in Birmingham um, all lined out with plastic and the boot and my picture in the car. Uh, because they wanted to kidnap me. So, yeah, so it oh is, it's God. real. It's real out there, you know? That's crazy, man. I mean, it's one thing knowing that there's war going on on the other side of the planet, and then it's when it's at home, that's when it's kind of like, I mean, nowhere is nowhere is safe really nowadays, no. is it? I mean, no. what kind of what kind of form did these death threats take? Was it online? Was it letters? Or... Yeah, online in the uh, national papers, um, they would put, um, you know, a backlash of what, Craig Harrison done sniper. We want to capture a Muslim soldier, and also we want to catch him and behead him, stuff like that. And yeah, and the media would put it in because it's media, isn't it? It's it's propaganda, and they would put it straight into the newspaper. And yeah, it's it's not to be sniffed at because it turned out to be quite quite fucking real stuff, you know. What, and, what do you do? What do you do about that? Like, how do you how do you even like when that starts? How well, do we you went into, we went off we went into hiding. We went off the grid, you know. But and we went to America for three years as well, so just to disappear and let everything calm down. And um, touch wood, everything's calmed down now, you know. And uh, you know, so that's why I don't mind talking about it. You know, did he have to change names or? I mean, no, not I'm... at all. Just keep you know, come off the electoral roll, um, different bank accounts, stuff like that. And yeah, it was any way we could be trackable we had to stop using like social media and stuff like that. So the old fashioned phones we had to use, you know, just stuff that would stop people from finding out where we were basically. 
Oh my God. Um, I mean, is that still affecting you now then? So, I mean, when you go out to town or something, you go do some shopping, go, you know, take the kids out. I know you've got two kids, like you mentioned, or you, you know, go to a restaurant. Are you, are you still kind of situational awareness, like trying to... Oh, all the time. I st- yeah. Still now, you know, I've been out for 10 years now and um, I'm still, you know, it's a th- and I say to my wife, it's a 360 battle and I'm always scanning my arcs and everything. I suffer from PTSD anyway, CPTSD. I've got um, hypervigilancy. Um, I suffer with and I'm constantly checking everything all the time you know and if I let my guard down and something happens I wouldn't let myself forgive myself my god man that that must be a lot to deal with I mean I think we remember you from the the lad bible stuff and obviously I've looked at the podcast you've done before as well and we know but obviously about the struggle you've been through but you know just kind of where are you with that all now how is how is life because it seems like you're doing pretty well right now which is great to see yeah, considering yeah, how it was yeah yeah, I'm good. You know, I take shitloads of medication, um, which people reach out to me on my Instagram. And um, Tanya helps me a lot on my Instagram as well. And we sort of talk to a lot of people that are struggling and they want to know my techniques. And uh, I see a therapist every Thursday, um, a gentleman called Ross Hall. Um, I see fantastic guy, you know, and my wife, you know, Tanya, she has been a great fucking support. And majority of people, people that I know that are suffering with PTSD, their families have left them and they're because they can't cope with it. But my wife must be a different breed because she stuck me by thick and thin, you know, and medication. Like I said, you know, medication is not the answer. And people would say, no, I don't want to start taking. But if it puts you on a level plane and doesn't let you drop into that darkness and depression, and suicidal thoughts, I will take medication. Like I've always said to people, it's not the fucking answer, you know, but if it gives you that respite, you know, um, it helps. And don't get me wrong, I have my bad days still, and I always will. I've seen and done a lot of stuff, and that will never leave me. But um, like I said, my wife, she's always here. I had my dog Betsy. She passed away last year, and um, my wife bought me another one, um, a little Westie called Steve, and he's filled a big hole in my heart that Betsy left behind. And I'm slowly bringing him up as well. So, yeah. Oh, man, that's um, I, I feel for you, dude. Uh, I mean, what what happened then? So uh, after the military and stuff, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to swap question four of question three, because we I was going to go into um, uh, like what happened afterwards uh, t- towards the end. But I think let's go do that now then. So, I mean, look, like like you said, veteran suicide man, it's, it's insane. I mean, I've had a few people on the show. You know, they talk about it a lot. A few people running foundations, doing good work. 22 to 44 veteran suicides a day, man. It's just, it's out of control. And, you know, f- thankfully, um, some of the people I know, they're they're on the right path. They, uh, you know, some of them went to do psychedelic assist- assisted therapy stuff. Some of them did the kind of the brain uh, TBI treatment bits and bobs there. And um, I think there's a few people who are, who are experimenting, finding ways to get through it. But I mean, after the military then for you, what was your the kind of the military care for you like then and, and the mad- the medication and stuff? Um, is it working for you? I mean, how how is that all going? Totally abandoned by the army. Totally abandoned. You know, um fuck all. Fuck all. You know, and nothing of the army. Um, I pay my therapist out of pocket. So I pay myself. Um, it helps, but um, yeah, he, he, the, the army do nothing. They do absolutely nothing. You're just a number to them. You know, you're a number when you join, 
and when you've gone, you, you're out, you're out. Don't get me wrong, some charities do help certain people, but when you've got complex PTSD and you've got bigger issues, um, they don't know what to fucking do. And the only people that understand people is people with PTSD. So say, for instance, you had CPTSD and I had CPTSD, you suffer from depression and suicidal thoughts. I can understand what you're fucking going through, you know, because I am there with you. And that's the point. And some of these doctors do not know what they're doing. And they just hand you a note saying, there we go, go and see NHS mental health, go and do this. And they don't help. No help there at all. And you just feel totally, totally, totally fucking abandoned. And what the MOD should do is every veteran or every soldier that leaves the British Army should get tracked for two years prior leaving. What, what after they left? They should get tracked for two years after they left, so I say. And then hopefully homelessness, suicide, drugs, alcoholism will stop because you're getting tracked and you're getting the fucking proper help. But the army don't. And it, the money the army wastes, my time in the army, you know, each regiment gets a budget of money, okay? And if you don't spend that money, you won't get the same amount next year. So they spend it on random stuff. Like, I think it got investigated a couple of years ago where the MOD were paying, like, was it £12 or £22 for a light bulb? you know, and because they had to get rid of this money. So to, well, use it in fucking other places then, track veterans, set something up, you know, and then let the money, spend the money wisely instead of spend it on shit. Yeah, it's, it's horrible, man. I mean, it's such a big problem out there. I just don't understand why nothing's been done about it. But I mean, the thing that surprises me a bit as well, just thinking about it, is that it's not just, I mean, let's put it this way, all of you should receive adequate support and and funding to, to to heal but you were someone who obviously had this accolade that you do and obviously media coverage and media exposure and you know name that's kind of grown in, in fame i'm amazed they wouldn't see a pro potential problem there if they're treating you to absolutely freaking nothing and you have a name and a voice in the platform and stuff how are they not even seeing the problem there for you know recruitment i mean ultimately your stories and when you say stuff like this it's putting some people are going to be like well shit i don't i, I don't want to do that i don't want to go put my life on the line and, and do this and then get chucked away and be facing this this crap so i mean why wouldn't they even support someone with a name as bad as that sounds i mean why i've had people say on my instagram and stuff like that i've done podcasts i've done loads of podcasts and some of the questions that the podcastee you know who's interviewing me they said oh we got this message saying oh you joined the army you knew the fucking consequences you know but you do not know how your brain is going to react when you kill someone you do not know your how your brain's going to react when you're in the fucking shit and your mates are getting killed mates are getting shot you don't know how your brain's going to react. No one fucking knows, you know? And for somebody to say, when well, you joined it, you know you know the consequences. Yeah, I knew the fucking consequences, you know? But I didn't expect to get shot in the helmet, blown up, do fucking hundreds of kills, or whatever, how many kills I've done, you know? You don't expect how your brain's going to work. And if you start enjoying stuff like that, you know, then there's something wrong with you. But... It was a, at the end of the day, there were targets to me. It was a job, and I'd done it as high as I could, you know.
well done you man it it just feels like to me I, I mean you look at the recruitment stuff and there's people who are in marketing and it's not soldiers like it feels like these are people who understand marketing and recruitment yeah and they understand the law and, and the government but they don't understand what it's like to be there. So maybe we can, uh, maybe we can give some of these recruitment jobs to uh, some of the veterans who are on the street and suffering because they can probably use that, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like I said before, you know, Louis, they need to be monitored for two years. Yeah, two years. Instead of giving, I don't, I don't go into this stuff, but instead of giving all these asylum seekers living in ex barracks and these floating hotels, give it to homeless veterans so they got somewhere to fucking go and they feel somewhere safe. A vet, homeless veteran is a veteran, right? And he's he was in the forces at some point as obviously a veteran. So where he puts his head down, it could be um, a pallet with a duvet and a cushion. You know, if he feels safe in that environment, he's going to feel safe. And on these ex-barracks, they, they've opened up and these hotels they've opened up, give them to veterans. And I'm sure they appreciate it because we're roughly tufty people. We don't care where we live, you know? Mm, yeah. I mean, it just feels like, you know, leave the war fighting to the war fighters. I mean, they, these guys are experts in the craft and the field, right? They should leave doing those jobs around the military to the people who know what they're talking about who have experienced yeah. it and they understand it to a deeper degree, not these pencil pushers and people who... Yeah who you know think they know what they're talking about but really all they're all they're looking for is just you know policy politics and uh and getting their, their name you know nice on a nice big check right and you have you have um you 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 have company charities that look for job for you and these jobs uh that they give you um these companies that you go into they say, oh, yeah, we help veterans. And that's, that's their tick in the box, really, because they've helped a veteran, you know. And that veteran, what if he has a wobble? I call it a wobble day, right? What if you have a wobble day? And then you have another day of wobble day and another way of wobble day, and you're not at work. You're going to cost that company money because you're not helping that company make money. So you're going to be let go. But hang on a minute. You said you help veterans. You're going to have to, you know, take the responsibility that that veteran's got mental health issues. You need to help them in that way. And it's, it's right. So many people that I know saying, yeah, I've got a job, Craig. And I thought, fucking brilliant, mate. Next week, he says, either let me go because I've had a fucking wobble. You're like, ah. But yet, that doesn't, they don't tell the charity that, you know, they sell, oh, yeah, we we took four veterans on this week. Oh, tick in the box, you know, and that's all they want is that tick in the box. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my thing really has uh, always been aviation. And I know that uh, uh, there's a massive majority of ex-fighter pilots who are now flying the commercial airliners. And there's so many of them, man. They have PTSD. I mean, I, I know my, my boy Wiz, it's his birthday today. Happy birthday. And uh, he runs the No Form Heroes Foundation. He gets anonymous messages from commercial airline pilots who say that they are suffering with PTSD and TBI and all these different things. But they're still flying as commercial airliners. Why? Because they can't say a word about it. Otherwise, they lose their job. And, you know, it's it's such a deep-rooted problem. So what do they do? They, they keep flying and they, they keep kind of you know, medicating and isolating, basically. It's uh, it, it's horrible. We've got to do something about it. I mean, wh where do you even begin with fixing problems so big but anyway man uh, on on your one what are you doing now then so i mean i've seen you doing some good stuff you've got a cool book out and everything um where's life yeah, taking yeah. you 
I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Longest Kill. Um, I couldn't write it about the shock because it'd be like a pamphlet. So um, me and my ghostwriter came up and said, let's write it about your life. I have an interest in life um, in the army and um, things that I've done in the army and the tours that I've done. And um, yeah, so I wrote a book, A Longest Kill, and it's become a, a bestseller, you know, because I've kept it quite raw. You know, my, my book was about this fact. It was massive. And then it gets smaller and smaller as it goes through the solicitors. Said, Fuck, now you can't put that. You can't put that. And then they, we came up with it with a normal size book. And uh, yeah, it's really good. It's the longest kill. Um, it just tells you about everything. Because I wanted to put people straight about my shot, really, because the Americans did a uh, dramatization of it. And uh, they did me lying down. When I took my shot, I was stood up. Um, when I took my shot, um, but everyone you thinks were I was stood up. Down. Yeah, I was stood up. Yeah, I was leaning against the compound compound wall uh, oh when God. I when I took the shot. So uh, that bro, makes it even harder, bro. I couldn't hit like a coke can at twenty five meters away, probably if I was standing up with my airsoft rifle or something. <laughs> you did that at that range? What? Yeah, yeah. I know, That's crazy. That is absolutely ridiculous, man. I've, yeah, hats off to you. I mean, you know, people may say a bit of luck or something, but dude, there's absolutely, you cannot hide just absolute skill and just years and of practice and, and talent really in, in something like that. You just can't get, you can't get lucky in something like that. But anyway, so um, kind of rounding this off now, I like to, in the show, have some kind of applicability and just a few things that we can maybe take away from it and, you know, from your profession, career and expertise and uh, maybe do a bit of applying as well and some some things that you might know. So um, as a sniper who performed as you did and landed those shots and target at that range, um, are there any or a few things that go into the preparation and execution of, of deadly accuracy and patience and sniping that might also be very effective practices in the real world of decision-making, business growth, and kind of handling stress and problematic spots effectively for uh, our listeners. I mean, obviously, like like you said, you had brothers' lives on the line, so you got to make that shot that far out, you know, mentally, how do you, how do you approach that? I think take your way from, take your way, take yourself away from the stressful stuff have a breather take a deep breath think about it and then go back into it and that's a good way of transferring the sniper skills into civilian skills you know it's all about calming down calming your breathing down because more you hype yourself up more stress you're going to get but if you control your breathing control and what you're about to say and how you're about to say it or what you're going to do and how you're going to do it it's all about take a deep breath Think about it and then go into it. You know, you're not timed. It's not a race. And just relax and uh, take things easy. That's what you need to do, you know. And don't forget, being a sniper, I do. you do dry training. So you practice over and over and over and over again and constantly practice. So if you're in that civilian world where this skill needs to be practiced, do not have skill fade. Keep practicing all the time and you'll get better and better and better at it. And you'll you'll strive to be a better person as well. So true, man. Um, one more thing as well, something that I'd like to ask too. So in the story you were telling at the beginning about kind of getting into sniping and, you know, that first sniper you met on that, you know, on the high ground there, um, 
So you said that he had like completely unwavering attention and, you know, his eye would not leave the scope. So I think in this day, in this culture and stuff, you know, I, I feel it in myself too, uh, with the, the kind of like, you know, these quick dopamine hits and things you get on Instagram. I mean, it's all designed to just take your attention away from things you're meant to be doing and kind of distract you. So um, in terms of like what snipers do to stay so laser focused for so long and just stay unwavering with that attention span, any kind of like tips practices or training that maybe people can do to like improve their just ability to stay focused for longer periods of time on work or in sport or anything really uh what i used to do is snipering um it's quite hard to transfer that into the civilian world because you've got a weapon system you know what i mean but what i used to do is put a laptop down and um set my sniper rifle down in a corridor and then put a film on on the laptop, put my scope on low magnification, and I just sit there and just watch the film and then put my crosshairs on the actors. And then I used to put a 50p or a 2p or 10p on the end of the barrel and I used to manipulate the bolt and close it and open it. And if the penny falls off or the money falls off, I'm being too erratic because it's all about being slow, taking your time and stuff like that, you know? Um, but like I said, it's all to do with practice, all to do with skill fade. Now, if I went out, I could shoot a rifle now, but doing the sniper phase, you know, I'd probably get caught because I haven't done it for a long time. But if I concentrated on it now and did it in a few months, that that skill will come back to me and I could be on top of my game again. So it's all about practice, all about concentration. And when I used to look for the scope for a long period of time, I used to make stories up other people you know and I think oh there he comes there's John there's Steve there we go and they should keep my mind occupied you know and then um, that was the easiest thing I could think of and it worked really well for me um, how you can do it into the normal world is do not stress about things nothing's worth stressing about okay and if you do stress about it take your weight like I said before take yourself away from that stressful place think about it go back and think and go back with a clear mind that's the best way of doing it brilliant stuff craig um right last little thing i want to ask then just for me as well so i'm a big fan of the military i love guns i've got to shoot only a couple in my time at a, a local indoor range and stuff but um if you've got someone listening maybe if you know obviously easier in america but uh difficult in the uk to kind of uh, go shoot some stuff but uh, for you, if you were talking to someone right now who's a big gun enthusiast or someone who wants to, uh, you know, get into a bit of shooting, have you got like a top two, top three things that you got to go and shoot or, or try out at least once? I think uh, in England, you've got shotguns, obviously, you know, um, fire a few shotguns, see if you like the feeling of it. You know, they've got a big kickback, play pigeon shooting and stuff like that. But if you want to start shooting accuracy and targets and stuff like that, I think the best weapon on the market at the moment is the AT. Um, it's made by Accuracy International. Um, it's a small compact 308 rifle or, or 5.56 or 6 mil. And uh, if you go down Bisley in Surrey, that's the best range to shoot them because they go up to a kilometre on them ranges. Uh, but you're looking at yourself, if you want to buy one, it's about 1,400 quid uh, to, to buy one. Um, so they, they are a lot of money to um to to um to buy so if you're really deep into it it's worth getting that but like again it's harder in england to get a weapons license 
you know, but you can go and join these clubs and they'll supply the weapon system for you after you do a, a background check, make sure you're not a complete maniac, you know, so. Awesome. Well then, Craig, thank you so much for all of that. Um, That's been the four and uh, quite a bit of questions done for today. Uh, before we wrap it up, it is time for the shameless plug. So, uh, Craig, feel free to take a minute and promote all the stuff that you're working on, your book, social media, or just uh, wherever you want people to go and uh, find your stuff, basically. Yeah, so basically uh, get my book, have a look at it, you know, The Longest Kill. It's an easy read because um, obviously I wrote it. And um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's a good read. And also I've opened a survival school up called the Maverick Survival School. Uh, just put that into Google, the Maverick Survival School, and it will come up. And basically any veterans out there uh, that are suffering from mental health, they all come down for free. And uh, we start on the Friday, finish on the Sunday. We all do bushcrafts and um, sit around the campfire. My therapist comes down. If you're struggling, you can have a chat with him. Um, civilians, yeah, there's a price there as well, I'm afraid. So, uh, yeah, um, it's not too expensive to come down. Um, everything's provided for you or you can provide your own kit. It's something that me and my wife came to, um, got together and made you know, to just help uh, people with mental health and veterans. So, yeah, go onto the webpage, have a look, start booking on, and I'll email you dates um, for you to come over down to Southampton and have a good weekend. So, yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. I'd love to uh, I'd love to join some time. But yeah, Craig, just want to say thanks so much for joining me today for the Talk for podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and uh, happy new year, bro. Yeah, you too, mate, and have a good one. Thank you, and thank you guys for listening too. This has been episode 96, and if you'd like to listen to the past episodes, go and have a look at our channel, and if you'd like to listen in for the future ones, make sure to hit that subscribe button and spread some love by leaving a like and a comment. Signing off for now, fights on, and see you next time. Good night.